0: even when trying really hard to please people it's difficult most people don't know exactly what they want and when they do know they often don't know how to articulate it in our personal lives this can be frustrating for sure and in a professional world it can be crippling for a company if it doesn't have a pulse on its customers wants but even more importantly their needs michael peachy the vp of user experience at ring central suggests the best practice for understanding customers is for a company to enhance its observational capabilities. What we want to do is go in there and
1: actually observe what they're doing. Watch them set up a meeting, watch people struggle with connecting a calendar to a meeting. How do you make sure everybody's in the meeting? And then from there, you can figure out what they're really doing.
0: Surveys are helpful in getting customer feedback as are one-on-one conversations. But the most helpful thing to do is to observe people in action. Rather than gathering as much customer feedback as possible, companies should be more like Sherlock Holmes. Holmes observed people, zeroed in on the essential data he gleaned from them, and then he used that information to solve the case. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Michael explains how his company strives to understand customers' experiences, to design apps geared to help people connect from a distance. He also discusses designing for functionality and beauty, and which of them is in the highest order. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the VP of user experience at RingCentral, Michael Peachy. Michael, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. All right, right out the gate. RingCentral, what is it and what does it do?
1: So uh, RingCentral builds and markets products that let people connect at a distance. So, uh, you know, for employees of organizations of all sizes, you know, two people to to 200,000 people, uh, if you need to be sending team messages back and forth, video meetings, screen shares, webinars, phone calls, file sharing, whatever, we've got tools that, uh, all integrate together and, uh, help everybody stay connected, uh, which has been super important. Of course, uh, you know, as we talk to you now, August 2021. Yep. Since about March of last year, uh, Communicating at a distance and being connected to people has been uh, top of mind, I think, for a lot of us.
0: So in your role at RingCentral User Experience, one of the things that we commonly hear, you can say they're misconceptions, you can say they're real, is that enterprise software is not as easy to use. I always say, I mean, I tend to agree. I've used a lot of tools in my career. Uh, They definitely tend to be a little more bulky. I don't know how best to describe it, but they have more features usually too. Mm -hmm. So you have to account for those things. Give us an idea of how user experience is changing in the enterprise world, because there's just more demands all the time of software uh, and functionality. But now the new one is with the uh, we were we were talking to some team members or previous guests about the great resignation and like people's toolkits are now like starting to matter to to people where they choose to work. Like the actual tech stack, like if I feel like the tech stack is too, I don't know. It's not for me, I'll actually choose to leave, which I couldn't imagine was a decision factor in people's jobs, but it sounds like it's becoming that way or it's, it is now that way. I'd love to hear your perspective on what's happening in enterprise software, how UX plays a role and what the demands of are on the enterprise side for UX.
1: Awesome, awesome question. So first, I, I, I gotta say that if you feel that many enterprise software tools are hard to use, you're not confused, it just means you're paying attention. <laughs>
0: Appreciate it. And we could go on and on and on
1: about why that is. Uh, But, you know, basically it's because every organization's got bigger dreams than they've got engineers and designers and people to build stuff. So, you know, we got a backlog of about a thousand things on our products. And I know everybody else does, too. And if you started reading that list, you'd be like, yeah, and that one and that one. I want that
2: one, too. (laughs) I'd be like,
1: "Okay, great. Now we got to put them in order for you. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a big thing that we worry about is, is a design team, is a user experience team, right? How do we give you enterprise grade software with security and reliability and scalability and stability and everything else, but give you that consumer class experience that you're used to where, you know, it's, uh, you don't have to go to a training seminar to figure out how to listen to a song on your iPhone or, Send your mom a picture of your new cat, right? Like it just works. So that's the the balance that we're always making: enterprise grade where you need it, but consumer class where you want it.
0: Yeah, I remember. So I'll give you a frame of reference so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, my first gig out of college that involved software, I was working at an e-learning company making WBTs and stuff for enterprise software. So like Oracle Financials, Oracle CCMB, PeopleSoft. Mm-hmm. And I remember we used this tool to teach people how to do simple things. Like if you were in HR and PeopleSoft, you're going to create a job requisition. I mean, it took like, it was like a 100 step process potentially, which I was like, this is bananas. Like this, <laughs> then this is just this one tool, you know? So you're in this constant battle, which is you got to be future rich. And there's also this battle of it's got to be easier to use. Like you said, consumer class products are really driving The expectation, the user expectation is like, this is going to be easy to use. Talk about how that weighs, like, how do you guys go about evaluating how to meet these demands? Because it is a massive challenge. When I think about an enterprise product, like what I'm talking about, like the amount of fields and options that are there, they have to be there because of course, somebody somebody wanted it and the job requires it. Yeah. So how do you make that elegant, easy to use, simple to navigate all those things that you, uh, you have to deal with?
1: Well, I think the, the number one thing is spending time with users, spending time with customers. So we've got a global design team in this organization. I got about 100 people all around the world whose job is to design software that works well for the users. You know, we've got a small army of product managers who are spending time with customers and users. What features do you need? You know, what what don't you need? What's getting in your way? And there's a lot of research that shows that the, the number one factor for success in a design team is how much time they spend with customers versus how much time do they spend designing stuff for themselves. So with that, we can get a good roadmap of what goes in and what doesn't. Uh, you know, and as you pointed out, you know, you hit a form somewhere in an enterprise software and <laughs> there's 35 things you got to fill out and only four of them matter to you. The problem is that a different formatter to somebody else over here, or A big company wants this and a small company wants that. Financial services wants this, healthcare wants that. And you're trying to build something that kind of threads the needle for all of them. Yeah, A lot of times, uh, you know, like the, the saying features check in but they don't check out and that's where stuff gets <laughs> kind of bulky. And uh, so our goal is to make stuff as usable as possible. And we talk about approachability. Can you walk up to the UI and figure it out? And that would be the goal. Uh, but a lot of things often require training, right? Like you wouldn't want somebody to try to design a jet so that some dude could just walk up to the cockpit and figure it out. (laughs) Like you kind of want your pilot to go through a lot of training and really figure, uh, you know, learn what they're doing. So, uh, you know, tools have got a balance between those two.
0: So in your experience, you know, you made a good point where if you're sitting down with people, you'll. it sounds like you'll observe. I think it's the best way to describe it. You'll observe behaviors and Patterns potentially that you otherwise wouldn't ever know about. What have you uncovered? What are some interesting nuggets you've uncovered in doing these user, user meetings where you're actually sitting down and watching them use your products? Because I think it's been said by many different people in many different ways, but like we as humans are just really terrible at evaluating ourselves. Like we can't describe what we want, we can't describe what we do. Uh, we're awful at describing what we saw. I've seen like a on TV shows where like they, they have people witness a crime and then listen to the descriptions. Like people can't even explain what they just saw. And, you know, <laughs> so it was 30 seconds ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, they, and they were told to pay attention and they still couldn't do it. Yeah. And so I was re- I, we had some of the, we've had some guests on IT Visionaries talk about how the problem with user surveys, while they are meaningful, they've made a comment about like, Hey, a lot of people don't really know what they're saying, even in their user surveys. So it's tough to figure out what's noise and what's signal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love to hear some of the things that you've observed that you've uncovered doing physical one-to-one meetings, watching people use products. So one of the
1: key things that you're getting at there is the problem with asking people what they want. Yeah. (laughs) Because people, they either don't know what they want or they think they know what they want. And, you know, a lot of times it doesn't really match reality. When we do those kinds of surveys you're talking about, we ask for specific observable behaviors. So. You know if you go and you ask a bunch of people you know on a scale of one to five how often do you floss your teeth you're going to get a lot of fours and fives on that on that list (laughs) if you go ask that same group of people or even better observe them and you say when was the last time you flossed your teeth or you get them to keep a log and you go and you look at the log You'll discover that, yeah, you got some fours and fives, but maybe you got more ones, twos, and threes than uh, than you'd want. So when we ask people about our products, you know, if we go in there and say, you know, hey, would you like this feature or this feature or this feature in your next uh, video call?
2: A lot of people are going to say, sure, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, you can even ask them, like, put them in order. And they say, okay, you know, I want them BCA. And like, terrific. You're like, okay, everybody wants B. So you go in there and, and you build that and then nobody uses it and you go back and you're like, "But you know, hey, you said you wanted this feature in the product, but I noticed you're not actually using it like, and people don't know why. So what we want to do is go in there and actually observe what they're doing, you know, watch them set up a meeting, watch people struggle with connecting a calendar to a meeting. How do you make sure everybody's in the meeting? And then from there, you can figure out what they're really doing.
0: There's a new rise of products that are like product-driven products to help product managers, UX, UI. They, they claim to do different things like pixel tracking, data logging, every single thing a person's doing, like where their cursors move to. I've even seen some companies claim they can sense where like, my eyes are, like where, where, how do I observe things? Mm-hmm. I'm curious, have you gotten a chance to use those products? Do you find them useful in helping you identify opportunities and uh, solutions for your product? Have those products replaced? the observations? Or do you still need that physical one-to-one observation to see what someone's doing? So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of really
1: good tools out there. I wouldn't say they replace observations, but they can enhance or provide those observations. So, you know, you mentioned eye tracking. Yeah. If you're designing a website, particularly if you're designing like an e-commerce site or a site where you want people to, to perform an action, Watching where people's eyes scan the page can be really helpful in understanding whether or not they're reading your content. Uh, you know, one of the biggest learnings from that, every time I've used those tools when we're doing, um, web design is how little people actually read on the page. <laughs> you look at the page and you see the little hot spots where their eyes are looking. They're reading your headlines. They're reading the first couple words in each paragraph. And then they're kind of skipping down to the pictures. You'll see in eye tracking software, if you've got a face on the page, immediately everybody goes and looks at the eyes in the picture, and then they scan the rest of the face before they do anything else. Like human beings are you know, evolved from our old caveman selves. Like if you see another person, the first thing you got to do is figure out like, do I have to fight this person or my friend? Like what's going on? Like you immediately <laughs> instinctually want to see the face. Then you check out the other stuff. And that can be really helpful because... That tells you don't spend a lot of time worrying about your long copy, maybe cut it shorter. One tool that, that I love, um, in are organizations out there, like full story, for example, that, uh, will track what, a, what a mouse is doing over the course of a session. Mm. You know, so you can't really sneak through the web and see somebody's eyes, but you can look at where their mouse is going and what they're clicking on and what they're doing. Those can be really useful if you've got, say, a form that's hard to fill out or a password reminder process that's difficult for people to do because you can record a couple of those and you don't even need a lot. Then you sit down with the engineers and the designers and the product managers and everybody else and say, hey, I got something to show you. And when people watch another person struggle with something, even if they find it really easy themselves because they've done it a hundred times, it builds this empathy where you're like, oh... We gotta fix that now. Like, God, yeah. that's painful. It's embarrassing. It's hard to watch. Yeah, and you can build that empathy with some random person that nobody's met that can be really compelling for helping us design better software for our customers and users.
0: So, by the way, in your last, the way you told that story, I think every copywriter died died inside just a little bit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I,
1: I, I love copy. We've got a really
0: robust content strategy team. You know, but
1: again, your point is understanding where should you be putting your efforts? Where yeah. if, you know, one of the writers is going to go do an hour of work or a day of work or a week of work on something, how do they know that they're making the biggest difference they can with their efforts? So if we give them the tools and the feedback and the guidance, then they know where to focus. Like, hey, people are struggling here. Well, let's
0: go fix that. So what are some of the things that you're seeing that, that gen- like general truths, I guess, about UX? You know, we always hear like you should make fewer steps, fewer fewer steps to complete things. But we already talked about it before. Enterprise tools tend to have multi-step functionality. Like it's it's really difficult to remove steps. We hear about removing steps, removing things higher to the fold. What are some general truths that you've heard that are maybe are still true today? And then, because what I'm getting at is because now the mobilification of everything, right? Where yeah. now it was in the early 2000, uh tens in <laughs> 2010s weird to say that but in the early 2010s there was like you know predictions that mobile would take over desktop though well, that's already happened like e-commerce traffic is like 80% now mobile right and so there's also this there's a grow you know i think for most part people still work from their their desktop computers but i do know there's certain fields of people that are you know they're doing more on their phones all the time and like there's demands of mobilized software more all the time i'd love to hear like some of these are some of these truths fading away like Is something replacing what used to be like a solution in UX UI design. I'd love to hear like your general perspectives on how we as people are evolving or products are evolving so that what used to be like, I'll I'll give you an example. Like someone told me like an accordion tree was a good way to organize information. But now I'm seeing like, like at our company for our files, we don't even organize folders anymore because search has become so prevalent. Search is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we number them, like we just number the files and like you, don't need to, you don't need to know where it, it is. Just search the file number, it comes right up. As long as you got a good search. So yeah, um, yeah you, you got a lot to
1: dig into there. So let's start with that thing about like number of clicks and finishing stuff, right? i want to get through stuff as, as quickly as possible with as few clicks. And that's one of those things that seems 100% true on the surface and is true a lot of the time, but not all the time. So I'll give an example of booking a plane reservation. When my mom goes to book a plane reservation, it's going to take her about an hour and a half. All in. <laughs> she's going to take a break for a snack partway through. She's going to go need to talk to my dad. She's going to text my sister. You know, she's going to think about it for a bit and go back to the computer. She is not trying to get through that as quickly as possible. She's trying to get through it as confidently as possible when she's done. She wants to know in her heart that she did get the best fare, that there's not a shorter flight, that she couldn't have gotten a better seat. Like she wants to be super confident. So you want to design a tool for her, like a lot of these online reservation tools that I'm sure you've used that maybe there's a bunch of clicks. You know, maybe there's some are you sure and confirms and things like that to get through it. But you want her to feel confident the whole way through because the moment she starts to feel nervous or dumb or she can't do it, she's going to bail. And now you've lost that customer. You've, you've lost that sale. If you're planning a business trip and you talk to the travel agent at the reservation place because you don't want to go book it on the phone, you want to get on and off that call as quickly as possible. You don't want to spend a lot of time. So you don't really care how hard the tool is for the person to use. You want them well-trained and you want them to move through it pretty quickly so you can get off the phone and go someplace else. So my mother could never use the airline reservation system that that reservation agent uses because it's all hotkeys and secret codes and this <laughs> and that. There's no pretty pictures. You know, It's there to, to use super quickly. And that reservation agent, if they were sitting down on kayak and clicking through that and reading you stuff, you'd lose your mind and you'd hang up the phone because it would take them forever.
0: Yeah. I know you're talking about all the keystroking. Yeah,
1: but yeah, they also don't,
0: right? What about certain things that used to that used to people used to implement a while ago? It seemed like there was all the rage of like hovering tooltips, but then like mobile came about and like hovering people don't hover anything. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
2: yeah, the phone
1: doesn't know where you're hovering your
0: finger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking like some of the different UX elements that have now, you know, they have just kind of fundamentally changed. Do you have any insight or some of the things that you're seeing that are pretty unique or pretty interesting as emerging UX trends that like it's pro- it's showing that people prefer these techniques over old ways? Let, let's talk
1: about mobile for a minute. Yeah. There's, a, there's a shift that's been happening for, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure the people who started thinking this way a few years ago would say it's been going on for three years. You know, there are others who haven't tripped over it yet at all. who are going to say this is brand new, but tablet applications are, are evolving. So it used to be tablet applications were a lot like your mobile app. People walked around, they, they held their iPad or their, their tablet in portrait mode, you know, tall and skinny. Yep. And they poked it with their finger and they did stuff that felt very mobiley. So people design tablet applications either as just giant versions of the mobile app, or if they designed a specific tablet app, it felt very mobile-ish. That's changing because now many, many tablet users have got a little keyboard, they're holding the tablet in landscape mode, it's plugged into the wall, it's their, it's their little mini laptop. They're using a keyboard, they got a little trackpad. So if you've got a mobile app, on your tablet, it's going to feel awkward in that case. So now a lot of things, if you go and you look at some of the the bespoke tablet apps, they look a lot more like a web app or a, or a, a software application than they do like the app on
2: your
0: phone. Oh, dang. Man. I didn't even realize that. I, You know, I was thinking, as you were talking, I was trying to think like how many people I see carry around tablets. And like, I know tablet sales have declined in relative comparison to like notebooks and obviously mobile sales are through the roof, but... It's pretty interesting, like even when like new fads come in, how quickly they fade away. You know, I'd love to hear your perspective on this because so inside mission, we always have this debate as well. So there's UX and there's of course UI. And what is beautiful doesn't necessarily function. Now I always point to mm-hmm. Amazon.com, which of course moves more Amazon sells more merchandise than just about everywhere, right? Yet if you ask anyone, does Amazon beautiful? I've never met anyone that says Amazon's beautiful. <laughs> but Amazon freaking works. It's better than it was. You know Go back to the uh
1: the internet wayback machine and take a look at Amazon and yeah. you know, three years ago, five, ten years ago, and and you'll see some ugly.
0: <laughs> but Amazon works.
1: Yeah, you know, the you ever use Craigslist?
0: Craigslist is another company that does like a billion plus, I think, and has like their UI. Very few people would say it looks good. Let's just put it that way.
1: Very few people would say it looks like it's been designed at all. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't think that UI has been touched since 1995 <laughs> when, uh, when Craig threw the, uh, the first version up on, online. But it does the thing that it's supposed to do, and, and that works. So there's a really good discussion in there to, to, to unpack. And I think the short version of it is if you build a software application or a tool or a website, a web app, that solves an interesting problem or an important problem for people, they will use that tool no matter how difficult it is, no matter how ugly it is to get stuff done. Right? So, you know, if you build a website called fill out this form and I'll ship you free beer, you don't need a really good, easy to fill out form because your value proposition is pretty strong. (laughs) Now, if somebody comes along with, we'll ship you free beer and we won't make it hard, Well, you're going to lose your your market share because they're going to go off to the the better app. So job number one, if you're designing an app, is make sure you're solving a problem. Make sure you're solving a problem that somebody's got. Even better yet, make sure you're solving a problem that someone has and that person's got some money and they're willing to give it to you. Then you can start worrying about how well you solve that problem. But the world is full of beautiful apps that don't do anything
2: useful. And nobody (laughs) uses them.
0: So like, you know, when we named a couple of those companies, you know, Amazon. I personally don't think it looks that good. I'm sure someone thinks it's great, but I still purchase from it because mm-hmm. you said it's gotta be useful. It is very useful for me to look up whatever products I want, compare prices, get what exactly what I need, and plus I trust their customer service. So it makes it easy for me to buy it from there. When we used Craigslist, that's an interesting one. I can't explain why I still use Craigslist, but every now and then I just feel like I, I do check it out. Mm. Reddit is another application that doesn't feel like the other social media platforms. Mm-hmm. It's got more of a, I don't know. It, it just feels older, like the the UI, the interface it just looks older and older style, but obviously Reddit is immensely popular. It continues to grow. Yeah.
1: And it looks like a couple of engineers designed it 10 years ago because they did.
0: Yeah. Maybe 15 years ago. I don't know <laughs> exactly when they put that thing together. But,
1: you know, Reddit's got the content you want and they yeah. do a really good job of surfacing the stuff you're interested in. If you're getting the emails from them, like they know exactly what kind of cat video you want to see or, you know, wh- whatever it is that, uh, that you're looking at.
2: Yeah. And they yeah. bring
1: you into the site and you're not thinking, do I want to see a beautiful site? You're like, no, I want to see that video of the eagle grabbing the fish out of the fisherman's boat because it's funnier. You know, like they got the features you want, uh, you know, where companies like that are at risk over time is if somebody comes along and does a better job of doing the same thing they do.
0: Mm hmm. So let's take back full circle to your space. Your space is highly competitive, you know, online collaboration, enterprise collaboration, communication tools. It's not, it's not going away. Big players enter it all the time. So how do you think about it from your perspective? Obviously UI and UX are important, but I'm sure you get requests often. that are like, hey, I want to design this beautiful thing. But if you probably know, you know, I'm just, I'm sure if it doesn't work quite like the way the user expects it, maybe it doesn't get shipped. I'd love to you to kind of explain Talk about your experiences in this field, because you are correct. If something, someone comes along that can do the same thing, but delivers it in an easier, more beautiful way, they have a chance of disrupting you. You're in a highly competitive field, lots of players in it. Uh, everyone's trying to like, you know, get their look down, their experience down. Talk about how you guys attack this problem and this challenge, this market challenge. Yeah, so there's kind of a hierarchy in there. You know, the first question
1: is, um, is it functional? Does it do the job you need it to do? And if it doesn't do the job you need it to do, you're not going to use the software. Correct. And that doesn't mean it's a bad tool. It just might not do the thing you need it to do, right? So, like, you know, if you need to have an online meeting, you know, Microsoft Word's not going to work for you. It might be a great word processor, but it doesn't have the, the, the features you need to have a meeting because it's not the right tool for it. So, you know, if you and me are going to start a new uh, online meeting company, First thing we got to have is the ability to broadcast audio and video. The quality's got to be there. You got to be able to connect. The meeting can't crash, right? It's got to actually work. The next piece of the stack is, you know, the usability. How easy is it to use? Can you schedule the meeting? Um, do you have a good integration with my calendar? Do you have a good integration with Google Docs so that I can post an agenda into the meeting and everybody can know what our meeting is so that we have a good meeting? That starts to drive preference right? Like the first one, you know, go to the enterprise, right? IT says you have to use this for your meetings. And like, all right, it works. I'll use it. The functional is when you start to get a choice and you're like, well, this one's easier for me to use than the other one over there. Um, and once everybody has got functional, then the sort of the enjoyable, the craftsmanship, the delight um, that might come out of the more visual design things could start to be a differentiator. But, you know, again, the most beautifully designed app that doesn't do the job it's supposed to do, you know, it'll look good in a coffee table book. It might win an a <laughs> word, but uh, people aren't gonna give it their time or their, their money.
0: Yeah, you, that's a great way to frame it, right? UI will get someone to give you a shot. UX and functionality are gonna keep people there. Like mm-hmm. no one's comes back for the UI if the other two things aren't true, yeah. no functionality. No good, bad experience. They, they ain't sticking around. Exactly. You know, in your space, there was a rise and ascension in the last two years of, or I guess it's been happening for a while, which is B to C to B growth. Mm-hmm. So companies that build, they really want business to business applications, but they kind of sell it at the consumer level. Slack is one of them, Right where people use it at a consumer level and then rolled right back somehow up into corporate giant companies. Box did it this way, Dropbox. Mm-hmm. They all kind of had this B to C to B model. What is it about user experience UI? Because I'm not, I, I can't put my finger on it. I don't know why people start trying new tools. Like <laughs> I, I, I don't because some because some, some things people don't really try. But like, what are some of the things that you, you see these companies doing or you yourself at RingCentral are constantly thinking about doing? Because like, That is, it seems to be a very good sales strategy. If you can get people to love the application in a lightweight way, they can bring it into their companies, spread it further. I didn't know if like you guys ever think about like launching features more like, more like how these companies have done it. I'd love to hear your perspective on this because this type of salesmanship, B2C2B, to to bi mean, it didn't exist certainly in the early, back when I first got in the software game in 2006, like everything was just straight up enterprise, AEs, deals. No one cared about the experience, function, 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 get it sold.
1: So I think what you're, you're talking about in there, and you know, you're right, Dropbox, Box, yeah. Evernote tried, Zoom is a great example when everybody yep. was using WebEx and Zoom came in. Uh, <laughs> Ring Central does the same things where we try to innovate in our experiences yeah. to uh, displace the incumbent products or to get an early in a new organization. So people get used to our tool and it goes right back to that stack that we were talking about, right? Functionality, usability, and then that that desirability of the craftsmanship that's there. So, you know, you're in an organization, that organization is using whatever tool and uh, it does the job. You know, take the take the meeting software. You know, you got uh, you got your meeting software product. Everyone's supposed to use it. It does the job. Uh, you know, you're in a meeting with a, with a partner or, uh, you know, somebody else internal or somewhere. And you're like, God, that meeting experience was better than the, the company standard. Like, I'd really rather have that. Like it works. It does all the functional stuff, but it was easier for me. It was easier for me to schedule. I had a, I had a different feature in that meeting that I really liked. You know, with Ring Central, our push there is integrating your messaging and your meetings and your phone all in one app. So you can kind of switch between them. Just a side detour there. One of my favorite features in the Ring Central app is that uh, you can move from your uh, desktop app to the phone with a click. What do you mean? So, you know, here we are, we're we're, we're having this meeting here. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to do it in the middle of the podcast, but, you know, maybe I, I got to get up. I want to go to Pete's and get a cup of coffee. With the Ring Central app, I just pick up my phone. I open the app on my phone. It knows I'm in a meeting. It gives me a big button that says, you want the meeting here? You don't even know I've moved to my phone. Hop in my car, go to my car play, drive, get my piece, go back, flip it back to my computer, nobody knows, right? Or maybe I'm late. So I take the call on my phone we're in the meeting and then later i get onto my desktop and do my screen share and you don't see us moving back and forth.
0: Yeah. so you don't get like the uh, the double screen effect. i i've done that where it's like i'm running late, i'm on yeah. whatever call and then i and when i get to my desktop, I, of mm-hmm. course we'll log in, but then there's that split second where i'm i'm in there twice and then you get that wow
1: wow wow feedback Yes, my echo on. chamber like
0: wow wow wow.
1: Everybody <laughs> knows that you were late, right? So <laughs> You know, we want to say, like, I don't care what device you're on. You want to be able to do anything you want. So make phone calls from your computers, take meetings from your phone, send messages while you're in the middle of the phone call, et cetera. It's all there. But, the you know, your B to C to B thing. So, you know, maybe you're in an organization that's using a competitive product. I can't think of any names, but, you know, something out there that people use. And uh, you start to see this Ring Central experience is a little better. It helps you get something done that you couldn't do. Maybe it's a little easier, maybe it likes a little more effective. So you start using that one. That's what you, know, what you call that B2C, that end user chooses the better app. Yeah. And then eventually more and more people in the company are using that app. And the IT department says, wait a minute.
0: What's this? Uh, you <laughs> know, how come
1: everybody's using that new app? And then they, they switch over. So uh, that kind of um, give people what they need in terms of experiences. Is a great strategy for for any organization, big or small, that's trying to, you know, trying to get out there and do good things.
0: Yeah. And how about internally, you know, when you guys think about how to implement features, that's one of the things that's you mentioned earlier is like, you know, your enterprise, you got thousands of customers. That means all the time people are asking for things. Mm-hmm. So that means your real estate on your screen, we know it's limited. We know people can only process so much information give us an idea of some of your methodology you used to get these things inserted, because if they add features, like give us an idea. Is it, is it a bunch of AB testing across different environments? Is it uh focus group testing? Like how do you ensure that the, you, you don't lose usability when adding features because there's plenty of features to add. And uh, mm-hmm. you already know this, if you stuff them all on menu one, you, you will lose, uh, <laughs> you will lose customers for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the,
1: um, you know, the answer is yeah we use all those tools so you know you know the first question is kind of like which feature should we be working on you know yeah. all you know we got a long backlog of stuff uh and there's a there's a heuristic we use for that which basically boils down to how big a deal is it for how many people and how hard is it to solve so you know if it's a big deal for almost everybody who uses the product and it's pretty easy to do, like, great, that goes to the top of the list. That, that's pretty easy. But you wanna make sure that you're, you're doing the most good for the most people with something that you do. So now you've decided, You know, these are my top five things I'm gonna work on this quarter. We use design and just iteration on that. So the first thing is just like, all right, I, I want 10 ideas on how to do this. 10 different designers, one, two, three, go. Come back and uh, they share their ideas with each other, and they all see something in somebody else's idea they want to steal. Or one of them's like, Yeah, I don't like my idea anymore. I like hers. I'm going to take hers and I'm going to mush it together with that. And they go out and they come back and they go out and they come back. And pretty soon you've narrowed it down to a couple of good ideas. And it's not anybody has an idea anymore, right? It's all everybody throwing something in the pot. And then when we've got some good hypotheses, guesses, then we can go out and we can talk to people in some pretty low fidelity ways really quickly. Uh, and that's where you discover that this thing that totally made sense to you makes sense to nobody else. Uh, <laughs> then once you get more confident in your design, you, be, you build like a higher fidelity version that you could go test. And then eventually the highest fidelity version is when you build it, and you put it in the product and then talk to people as they actually use it or measure the clicks, measure the usage and circle back and say, well... You know, I was, I was hoping that 25% of my, my users would use this feature in their next meeting. You know, all right. How many used it? How often did they use it? Did they use it twice? Or did they just use it once. And then, you know, more often than not, you're going back to the drawing board because everything's an evolution.
0: Yeah. So give us an idea on each stage, like how much success has to be true for it to move to the next stage. Cause you mentioned like at each stage, you're measuring the fidelity. Like, is it like, 60% of people have to be using the, using the feature, the way it is designed 70%, 80% give us a idea. What, what does success look like to you guys?
1: It depends on, on what kind of experiment you're trying to run. So if, if we're trying to decide like what's a better color palette for the product we might go out there and get some feedback and learn that like nobody wants to see pink on orange, (laughs) but you know, all right, you're going to have people that like blue people like purple people like something else, right? You're not going to get everybody to agree on that. So great. Yeah. You know, make a decision based on whatever, if what you're designing is the login screen, well, probably something close to 100% of the people really ought to be able to get through the, the task. <laughs> and, and if they don't, you don't have it right. So it, it really depends on on the, the feature. The other thing is kind of, do you want it to be able to figure it out right away? You know, or is this something that can be learned? Like you might not be able to figure out how to integrate your calendar with something without kind of thinking it through. It's not going to be immediately obvious. But if you're going to send a text message, Probably 100% of the people ought to get it right the first time.
0: Okay. That makes total sense. And it, the way you describe that, now I'm thinking about the people at CAPTCHA. And now I'm thinking they want me to fail. Because <laughs> I've noticed that CAPTCHAs are getting like increasingly hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the AI can solve all the easy ones. They're going to you for the hard ones. Yeah. Although I got to agree with you. I think sometimes I get it right and they just give me another one because they can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're just working me too hard. Exactly. You'll see, like, which one of these has a tree? It's like that tree is clearly kind of in the third pane, but it's, it's not fully in the pane. Should I select it? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's like, you
2: know,
1: like, which of these have got a stoplight in it? It's like, well, the polls in this one. Like, does that count? Does it not count? I don't know. I'm so stressed out.
0: I know, man. Captures are getting super hard. I wish they could just tell me, no. I don't know. Just put my thumbprint. I can't wait for those days. <laughs> Michael, man, it's been awesome having you on IT Visionaries. Uh, you've shared a, quite a bit about how you go into making decisions, how you stack rank priorities. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show. But before you go, It is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Michael, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I'm ready. All right. We checked out your Twitter profile. It says you're a kite surfer or you say you're a kite surfer. Are you actually a kite surfer?
1: I am actually a kite surfer.
0: Oh man. Do you do flat water or do you actually go in the ocean and surf the waves with the kite?
1: So I'm, I'm more of a flatwater chop rider. Uh, what gets me going are the big air tricks, the inverted tricks, you know, anything that sends me 50 feet in the air and slams me down in the water as hard as I possibly can. That's what I'm going for.
0: Dude, that is impressive. So you're an, you do these aerial tricks?
1: Yeah, that is the, I, I saw somebody, I was driving down the, the coast one day near Waddell in Santa Cruz, California, and I saw somebody jumping on a kite and like, I, I stopped the car I got out, I stood there and watched and said, like, I got to have a piece of that. That was almost 20 years ago.
0: Okay, so anyone who's ever watched kite surfing videos or uh, seen it on YouTube or anything like that and knows that there are epic fails when it comes to learning how to kite, have you ever had a massive fall in kite surfing?
1: Uh, well, Yeah, it's if you're not falling, you're not trying hard enough. The trick is to not <laughs> fall on land because the water's a little bit softer.
0: I've seen some people when they're learning get dragged through the sand. I've seen some people get way too high. Um, they came down and didn't, luckily, didn't get injured. But I always thought to myself, like, man, this this looks pretty darn dangerous.
1: I will say that it is uh, a lot easier to learn than it looks.
0: <laughs> what else besides kitesurfing do you enjoy doing? Because that seems pretty extreme. You're design UX by day when you can, your are are kites and not just kite serving, you're doing aerials, which is a whole nother level of bananas. What else do you like to do?
1: Well, I got four kids. So that's, uh, that takes a bunch of my time going from, uh, 21 to eight. So there's, uh, there's always something to do there. Three girls and a, and a boy. So whether there's a dispute to mediate or basketball to play or, you know, sitting around having a tea party with the eight-year-old, there's, uh, there's something there to do. <laughs>
0: I have three kids. They're all closer in age, but I agree. I'm, I feel I'm at the age, at least some of yours can drive themselves. I'm, I'm, I'm driving my kids everywhere. My wife splits time. Like sometimes I don't even know how we're doing it, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty intense.
1: I don't know how people did this before Google calendar and, and being able to kind of track everything and know who's where uh, it's, it's amazing.
0: Well, I don't think they did. I think they just didn't do that many. I, I was asking the same questions. Like, I don't think I was enrolled in this many things. Like, I just think parents just didn't do it. You couldn't do it. I just remember as
1: a kid, like, you know, there was always that risk that you're going to end up standing wherever you were, and it'd be like six o'clock, and then my dad would come rolling up looking all yep. flustered because like you know, nobody read the note on the fridge to get me at three.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You were given a quarter, I'm like, hey, this is for you. <laughs> call me. What if you don't pick up? It's like, oh well. <laughs> I'll call again. We don't have answering machines. Yeah, exactly you know, you've kind of hit on a bunch of fun things. So you're kite surfing, you're a family man. Give us an idea of, you know, what other things do you do to learn this stuff that you know? Because like, that's one of the cool things about UX or UI is like, it feels like there's a lot of research. How about reading? What do you read to learn more about your field?
1: I mean, there are a lot of great design books out there. Uh, and if I'm going to make a book recommendation out to your audience, um it's not going to be a design book it's going to be a career book okay uh, there's a woman out there named patty Azzarello. uh she's written a book called rise and another one called move either of them are basically hackers manuals for your career okay so as you're moving in your career if you're thinking about becoming a manager or a team leader you're recently a manager or a team leader that book is amazing. I've given away easily 100 copies in my life to, to different people on my team. As far as how I learn, I'm incredibly blessed. Like I get to go out there and look for and hire the best and the most interesting people I know. Give them hard problems and watch them solve those problems and, and learn from them. So, uh, like I said, we got about 100 people on this design team around the world. Every one of them is smarter than me. Every one of them is a better designer than me. And I learned something from every single conversation. And you know, I don't know where, where else in the world you could go get 100 teachers.
0: Yeah, I don't know. How about for your personal application, personal product usage? Is there anything that like where you've used lately? You're like, wow, the UI UX on this is just it's just butter. You know, we always hear buttery UX is I think is the term that people love saying. But is there any application or any new software that you've seen that's just like blown you away?
1: Um, I don't know if there are any apps that have just blown me away on the the craftsmanship level. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in online collaboration. Whether it's you know tools that give you a meeting space, kind of an always-on meeting, uh, tools like Miro that that let you do whiteboard kind of collaboration, mm. Canvas collaborations, we're using Miro all over the place, not just for for work, but um, you know even in family planning stuff. Oh wow! We're trying to put together a big uh, kind of like camping trip with all the cousins and everything else, and we got to figure out like who's going to be in what campsite, so. You know, people don't intermingle too much, and who's going to cook what, and the other thing, and uh, so we got we got all the you know the people from the you know my eighty year old mother in law down to the you know the fifteen year olds who are going to be helping with the cooking, all in a mirror board rearranging stickers. Uh, it's great.
0: And there's no problems in usage. From you, you mentioned that age spread, right? From grandma to the kids, everyone's using the product, no problem.
1: Everybody can figure out Miro. Yeah, yeah. You, you copy a post-it note, you type on it, you change the color, and you go put it near some other post-it notes. It's uh, you know, it's a very easy physical metaphor. You know, just like doing it in real life. Nobody needs any training.
0: Well, if that's not high praise, I don't know what else is. Michael, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing some of what your team's up to, how you guys prioritize, how you guys test, how you guys ship product. It was awesome having you on the show. And if I see you out there kite surfing, I expect to see some tricks.
1: Oh, definitely. Come by and get a
0: lesson. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.